scripture reading for Mark 9, 33 to 41. Who was the greatest? And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But, he kept, but they kept silent, and on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If any would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and then taking him in his arms, and he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Anyone not against us is for us. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Greatness. What is greatness? How would you measure greatness? How do you know who's great and who's not so great? There's uh, two different answers, as there is with almost everything. There's the world's answer, and there's Jesus' answer. I think sometimes... When we think of worldliness and we don't want to be of a worldliness nature, we don't want to be uh, in the world, we tend to then uh, try to avoid certain worldly things, certain movies, certain behaviors, maybe even certain people. And while there's wisdom in that, I'm not saying that there isn't wisdom in that, we often um, or have a tendency to um, overlook However, what Christ is really saying, what he's really pushing into us is that, listen, we live in this earth, this world, that is run by Satan. And so all of the ideologies of this world, all of the false truths of this world, including how life works, is completely different in the kingdom of God. See, to, to be worldly is to come to the, con- the conclusion of how life works based on something other than what God says. And this is what we're going to see this morning in this passage as the disciples are arguing over who is the greatest. The interesting thing about this is that Jesus doesn't rebuke them trying to be great. But he redefines it and he redirects it. He redeems the desire for greatness. And there's a freedom in that. There's this awesome freedom when we're living in the kingdom of God as opposed to what the world says because in the world there's this bondage. 
See, in the world, the, the greatest is in comparison to. Right? If there's any sports fans in here, you know or have probably been a part of a conversation of who is the GOAT, the greatest of all time. The younger generation is going to tell me it's LeBron James, and I'm going to argue, no, it's not. It's Michael Jordan. And there's this comparison. Who is better? See, the, 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 the idea isn't to be just great for the purpose of God, for the glorification of God, or to be fully satisfied. It is to be better than our neighbor. And we run a, a world system on this. And let's face it. Most of us, if we're honest, are not leading the pack. We're running average. And this tends to, especially for young people, uh, be a point of contention, a point of depression, a point of change. Like, there's something wrong with me. I'm not good enough. Other people can do what I desire to do better. And so, there's, and therefore, I am not great. I will not get the recognition. I will not make it on the front page of a magazine. I'm not going to get a book deal. I'm not going to be great. But you're not great according to the world. But are you great according to the kingdom of God? There's tremendous freedom in what Jesus offers us here this morning in this passage. So they came to Capernaum. We're back into Capernaum. And when he saw, uh, when he was at the house, in verse 33, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? And of course, when Jesus, when God asks a question, it's not for his benefit. It is for ours. And this is, this is the God that we love and serve, right? This is, this is God the Father, and this is Jesus. This is the Holy Spirit, the trying God, is constantly communicating to us personally. They desire a relationship. These are talk, this is a talking God who desires relationship with us. And often we're silent because of our sin. We see this in the Garden of Eden, right? When, when they heard somebody coming, they knew God was there, and what did they do? They ran and what? Hid. And God said, where, where are you? Again, not for his benefit. Where are you? This desire to, to have relationship, and yet we, we run and we hide and we're, we're ashamed because they know that they have sinned here. They know that they have sinned. It says in verse 4, but they kept silent. Why? For on the way they were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. They intuitively knew Christ would not be pleased with this discussion, with this posture of heart. And so they kept silent. But what a wonderful and gracious God. See, confession isn't criminalizing ourselves. It is an opportunity to get be redeemed by the Father. It is an opportunity to, be, to come into redemption with Christ. Because look at Christ's response to their sin. This cannot be missed by us. This is the gospel at play. This isn't the gospel where you're going to hell and need Jesus to be saved. No, this is the gospel for the rest of your life. Unless you plan on never sinning again, this is what we need to see. This is the reaction to the Jesus Christ towards our sin today. This invitation. He sat down and called them to him in the midst of their sin. This is the grace of God. This is the gospel. This is where sanctification comes from. 
Because if all I get from my sin is self-shame and self-loathing and a resolve to try harder, I have missed everything. My sin, my brokenness, my failure should cause me to run to Jesus Christ. He is my only hope then, now, and forever. And he is gracious and wonderful how he deals with the disciples and their sin. He, he sits down and he calls them to him. He wants to give them a lesson. He wants to heal and redeem them. Change their worldly perspective into a kingdom perspective. This is why we sin. We sin because we still so much, while avoiding things, have this worldly perception and perspective and not a kingdom perspective. So he sat, he sat down. Now back in the day, this was the position of authority. Rabbis taught, sitting down. They got to relax. So it'd be opposite as how we're doing it here. I would be the one to be able to sit down and relax and you guys would all have to stand and, and listen. And so when, when the rabbi sat down, this was the position of authority. He was going to begin to teach. And he knew that. And he calls him to him and he says, he says, if anyone would be first. So let's stop there. He doesn't say to them, hey guys, you shouldn't desire greatness. He's not rebuking their desire, their longing to be great. That's not the sin. This is what we were created for. We were created for greatness. He, we, guys, we were made in the image of God. There is no other creation that can say that. We were put in charge of the earth and everything in it. We're called to do great and mighty things. There ought to be this desire. What father would be worth anything if he thought to himself, I hope I'm an okay dad to my daughter or son. No, there's this sense from the minute our children are born that we want to be great to our children. We want to be great to our husbands and our wives. We want, to be, we want this greatness. This is, this is not a sin. This is not a bad thing. In fact, we're told, we're called to, we're commanded to do all things under the glory of God. But it's been marred, hasn't it? Like everything else. We have these instincts, these desires, but they're, they're, they're marred, they're God-given, but they're broken. They're misdirected and they're misguided. It's not longing to be great that's the sin. It's longing to be known as great. It is living a life seeking, depending, pleading for validation from other men. Needing to be okay because you think highly of me. And if you wanted to build a statue, that'd be fine. It, it, it's corrupted by allowing that to be great, but to be greater than somebody else. We know this when we're stuck in ego. It, it, isn't, it isn't enough just to, to succeed. I mean, we, we sit there and think, oh, wow, the boss gave us a pat on the back. He thinks highly of me. And then the next day we see him praising another coworker, and we think, oh, no, 
he no longer thinks I'm great. He thinks the other guy is greater, and I've got to, I've got to put this guy down. And so I'm going to pull the boss. I said, boss, you know, I know you think he's good, but you don't know what he does when you're not here. <laughs> Man, if I could take him down a little bit, I can then, in comparison, be great. This is this is a marred desire. So he's not condemning their desire for greatness. He is redirecting. He is redeeming that desire and in, in, in bringing the, the kingdom perspective to it. So if you desire, if you would be first, okay, and how, so how do, we, how do we measure, how do we become great? Well, according to the kingdom of God, we must be the last. He must be last of all and servant of all. Philippians uh, 2 says, Do nothing for self from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. When we think about, like, you know, okay, what, 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 how, who's in my life? Who do I know? What are, what's my realm of influence? Who are the people? How do the people around me respond to me? Am I somebody that, as a result of being with, you feel better, energized, lifted up? Am I quick to praise others? Am I quick to, to, to point out the goodness, the greatness that I see in others, to ignore all the defects and the frailties and not hinge on those and put you down with those? But if somebody who is really gospel-driven, like Christ, to love and to exonerate and to lift up and behold... Or am I too afraid to do that? Because if I do that, you might become greater than me. Others will notice you more than they'll notice me. See, Christ says, no, 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 that's what we need to do. We need to be somebody that as a result of being around me, you are lifted up. You feel better. There's this encouragement, this energy by being around us because we count others more important than ourselves. We're not even considering ourselves. Your opinion of me, do you like me, do you not like me? Guys, it is finished. You're adopted and accepted by God Almighty. No longer do we need to worry about what your opinion is of me. Do you like me, do you not? We don't have, it's off the table. Now it's all about you. It's all about others. How can I love you? How can I bless you? How can I serve you, servant? To all. Mark 10 says, For even the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and give his life, uh, give his life for ransom as many. Jesus Christ is the prime example of what greatness is. Who's greater than Christ? Who's great? Nobody's greater than Christ. Who is the greatest servant? The most humble? Who, while he was in this world, was last of all and servant to all? Jesus Christ, he exemplifies this. He is our model. What is greatness? Michael Jordan, the CEO of whatever, the one with the most money, the one we see in the tabloids, the 
best looking actor or actress? Or how about just even put it down into our world? Who's the greatest? The one who seems to have all the talent at work and the boss recognizes over and over and over again? So there's this tendency to want to follow and play in that game. But Christ calls us back. He redeems us back with the gospel and says, no, no, all of that is finished in my blood and in my work. I am now in you. You are to become like me and have my heart. And my heart is for others. 24 7, 365. It's about others. And then he gives this demonstration. He illustrates them for them this in, in, in an actual uh, demonstration. In verse 36, he says, He took a child and put him in the, midst of, in the midst of them, and taking him in his arm, he said to them, And so you can picture them all standing around. He grabs, he grabs one of their children, and he brings them over. And in the midst of them, and he grabs them, and he holds them, he embraces this child. Now, for us to embrace a child really wouldn't have any significant meaning, so we have to understand this in context of where we're coming from. This is a society where infant death was rampant. The infant death percentage was extremely high. People lost their children constantly. It was not an abnormal thing. Coupled that with the fact that this was a society that depended heavy on physical labor. I mean, physical labor, the ability to um, put back into the community was everything. And so you were rather useless if you couldn't put back into the community. And so children were really, literally just kind of sidelined until they could come of age. <laughs> they were sidelined until they could, could contribute something. This was just... Uh, their community, this is the way their culture operated, much different. Much different. Today, you're celebrated if you make your children an, an idol. Amen? I mean, this is where we have this child-centered uh, view. This is a completely different thing. And so the child was to represent the lowliness, the, the lowest of the low, the last. And, and he embraces this child, and he says, whoever receives such child, uh, one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So how do we receive the Father? How do we, when the Father looks down, and he says, What's, who's great? Who's great? Oh, here's this one here, who is serving this homeless guy who probably is never going to respond well to all that effort, is certainly never going to run around and praise his name for serving him. Really, this person is getting nothing in return for serving this broken, homeless guy that will most likely die in the streets. But he's serving him. Why? Because he's got the heart of a servant. How did he get the heart of a servant? It is by loving God. It is by being in the presence of Jesus Christ, our servant. It is about wanting to be like Christ more than anything else. We must be careful in this idea of service because even in the church structure, as we become servants in the church structure, it usually comes with titles such as pastor. 
and I can start to attach my own pride and image and ego and accolades and all of us can do this. This is a, a verse. So we, we need to prayerfully think about what, who's God putting in our lives. It isn't gonna, it's not gonna be a praise. It's like serving a child. I work hard for Ellie. I do. <laughs> and, and, and it's because I love her. For no other reason. Because children have a tendency to not say thank you. It's not like Ellie sits there at night and goes, you know what, man, oh man, my dad really works his butt off to make sure I have a good life. There's no recognition to any of it. That servitude. Somebody once said, you know that you have the heart of a servant based on how you react when somebody treats you like one. This is what God is saying. We don't serve others for accolades, for attention, for praise. We don't even serve others that they might respond. We do it because we love God. And we're servants. We're not in this world. We're in the kingdom of God. So Jesus offers this, them this opportunity to confess and their confession really was in the way of silence. Nobody said anything. They were too ashamed to even speak. But Christ demonstrates his love and his mercy and his redeeming power. And it moves John. John becomes moved by this somehow. And, and he, he confesses. He has this other confession. Well, since we're on the topic, teacher, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop them. Why do you try to stop them? Because... He was not following us. <laughs> we, this is, you know, there's Christianity, but then there's like how many denominations, different walks of kind of, you know, Christianity, which is fine. The expression is perfectly fine, but the problem becomes when all of a sudden we start bickering towards one another. Sometimes, and this is reality for the church, this is a harsh reality, people don't know us by our love, they know us by how we fight with one another. And whose doctrine is more sound, and we do church the right way, and ours is more orthodox, and Christ is not even, and this is back and forth, and this back and forth, and many in this church have heard me talk before, and I think it's worth saying again, because it's something I need to constantly remind myself of, and certainly this is what Jesus is pointing to here, is that we need to compartmentalize and organize what's important and what matters, and maybe what doesn't matter so much. And so when we talk about theological systems and denominations and all of these things, we need to think it through as a, a first tier, second tier, and a third tier issue. Or to put it another way, we need to think about it as an absolute, a conviction, and a preference. See, the, the first tier, or the absolute, is the things that we must absolutely, there are things that you must Believe in order to be a Christian, a part of his church. They're non-negotiable. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ rose on the third day, died and then rose, resurrected on the third day, that's not just like your opinion, man. You're not a part of the church. That's a closed-handed issue. That's worth fighting over. That's worth standing on. 
are not, you are, we'll put it this way, whether you read the King James version of the Bible or the ESV version of the Bible would be a conviction. That's a conviction. And, 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 and we can get together and have those debates and have a conversation and we should do so lovingly to kind of bless one another, to help each other get stronger, but to, but to part ways, to think of the other one as not a Christian. I wouldn't listen to that guy. He reads out of the NIV. I, I literally saw at a, um, a bookstore, I should have gotten it. I regret that I didn't buy it. It was a, um, a book that says... The, the title was Why the NIV Was Really Written by the Devil. <laughs> it's a real book by a real pastor. It was like this thick. And I'm still to say, I wanted to, I should have bought it. I regret it because I just wanted to see how much you were saying about that. How, how incredible that is. This would have been a rebuke. This is a rebuke from Christ. No, no, don't stop them from having church, from preaching the gospel, for casting out demons, or doing mighty works, or doing it in my my name, that's a first-tier issue, and then a third-tier issue, or a preference issue is, you know, what color carpet should we have? Pews or chairs? Four songs or five songs? These are preference things. If you don't think churches have been split up by preference issues where all of a sudden those things become first-tier things, this is a very important thing that we constantly check our hearts and remember that we're servants. And we don't serve our ideology and our convictions, though they're dear to us in importance. And we certainly don't serve our preferences the way we wish things were or want to be. We serve the first-tier stuff, the stuff that makes God God. The stuff that means Jesus, Jesus. That's what Jesus told me. He said, don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon able after to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us, he's for us. See, and I, I think the Christian Missionary Alliance is one of the areas that we typically excel in, right? Who want to major in the majors and minor in the minors, but I still need you in my own heart. Check. What am I fighting for? What am I standing for? Is it the right things? And am I breaking fellowship because of a second or third tier issue like the disciples were doing here? Their emphasis wasn't that it doesn't he doesn't say because they weren't following you, Jesus. <laughs> they said they weren't following us. And they didn't do it like us. So here's the application. Verse 41 is the application, and I think this is the good news. This is certainly good news for me. He says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. See, as we think about being of service to Christ. There's a reminder in this that we can't do that on our own. We must do that with 
Christ, but we often tend to think out things like, man, if I, man, I watch Billy Graham, I can't do what Billy Graham does, and so I'm just not even going to do anything. I mean, if I can't do it, if I can't evangelize like Billy Graham, the greatest, the pecking order, then I am not going to do it. And Jesus is redeeming that and saying, no, no, the smallest act of service, which has seemingly no significance whatsoever in the world, is great to me. As long as it's done in the right heart, and the right posture. This is an encouragement that we should step out and evangelize over and over and over again and to serve over and over and over again because every single one of us is qualified to give a cup of water, to give a kind word. Do you know in these days now when all of these places are struggling for employment, the people that are working that are actually there are probably there in their 75th and 80th hour that week and are drained and miserable? And then be treated in kind? And what would it take for a Christian to walk in there and get one of those I've seen you cards and just be a blessing? Thank you for being here. I see that you're struggling. I see that you're hurting with a smile on our face. Do you know what that does to the heavens? It is the greatest thing we can do maybe all week or all month. Just to love and encourage the down and the broken. The person who will never know your name. Never be able to say anything about you. And if you don't tell anybody, nobody will know. But your your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the way to greatness. It is to have the heart of Christ. Remember that Christ gave this message on his way to Jerusalem. With every passage we read, he is one step closer to the cross. He is the authority on who is great. He is the authority on service. We're all able to be servants through the power and the blood and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, God, as I um, was preparing for this sermon this morning, Lord God, I had a lot to repent of because it is so easy uh, to have a worldly mindset since it's all around us and to think through, um, you know, what is great and where my heart postures that sometimes I don't even realize that my heart is actually posturing towards this worldly position and not a kingdom of God position that I, I sometimes I don't share your heart when it comes to greatness, Father. And this is a task that is too great for me and for any of us, really, Father. So I just pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit convicts us and rises up in us and allows us to seek on purpose to have the heart like Jesus to be last of all, to be of service to all, and to be gracious to any brother and sister who is attempting this on this in the same journey, Father. I pray that we might be successful on these things, that your church might grow in power and strength, that your word might be proclaimed with clarity and conviction and effectiveness. 
And then we might have some small, unbelievable part to do with it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.